You're listening to Washington Post Live's weekly conversation series with cultural pioneers and changemakers on race in America. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robert Samuels, national enterprise reporter at The Post and co-author of His Name is George Floyd, One Man's Life and the Struggle for Racial Justice. Today, we continue our Race in America series with National Book Award winner Amani Perry, author of South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation. Amani, welcome. Thank you for joining us. I thank you for having me. I'm delighted to see you again. I know. It's such a <laughs> thrill to see you again. Last time it was such a pressure cooker. It was. Uh, <laughs> could you talk to us a little bit about how it feels to have this honor bestowed on you? Um, it's a bit surreal. Um, I think that, you know, those those two days that we spent in New York um, in many ways made it feel like something that um, I could get a little bit of a hold of, which is to, you know, we were in a community of extraordinary writers and thinkers and people who are trying to um, bear witness with their work, um, including um, you and your extraordinary book. And so um, it feels wonderful. It also feels part of a sense of purpose I have. And yet I sort of can't believe it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're so thrilled for you. The book is gorgeous, and I'm glad we got the chance to chat about it. Uh, you know, in the beginning, you write that there isn't one beginning to the United States. It's a very profound statement. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about why you decided to begin in the South in thinking about your journey and understanding the United States. Sure. I mean... You know, it's, it's really interesting because we have, in the midst of these political debates about how you name the origin of the country, right? Whether you talk about 1619, um, for me, if you want to include Florida, you're going back to, you know, 1500, you know, uh, 1776. And the debates about when we began are often um, connected to ideas about what is important, what parts of the story of the nation are important. Um, I think one of the things that's really telling is wherever you begin the story, it is in the South. And part of that sort of that as an origin point tells you a lot about what the country is, right? It began as this place where European empires that are um, that are hungry for expansion and in competition with each other and want and seeking the fountain of youth or gold or or prosperity in some way or another descend upon this land where there are people already and 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 decide to use it and to be willing to harness the land or have the greed for harnessing the land to be so intense that they're willing to push people off of it and um, grind other folks' lives down to almost nothing and um, and and really be sort of motivated by a, a, a desire to conquer. And that's that happened in the South because of the climate, right, and the environment, the lushness, the beauty. But that sensibility is really at the core of what this country has been. It's a fundament, there's a fundamental tension between the sort of the starry-eyed dreaming and the cruelty that was at the inception point. And, and that's, you know, part of, so I, I want to get at that as, um, 
as an origin point to understand why we are the way we are and in what ways we might aspire to be different. Right. And one of the really interesting things about this is, as a person who grew up in the North, there's sort of this nefarious, we don't want to talk about the South idea that permeates our culture. Your book sort of challenges that notion. Talk a little bit about how you hold both the pleasure of it and the cruelty of it. Yeah, I mean, I it's so interesting. I mean, part of it is, for me, um, being born in the South, having my family be in the South, and growing up in the Northeast, and being in this you know constant move back and forth over the course of my life, made me very aware of how um, mythologized the South was as the sort of the bad place down there, right? Um, when of course, and it's particularly around issues of race and racism, when of course the entire nation um, bears that shame. Um, but I, that so much of the mischaracterization in some ways functioned to absolve the rest of the country for its responsibility when it comes to inequality. And so I wanted to expose not just that, um, you know, it, the story of inequality is not just a Southern story, but that the whole nation has um, sort of taken from the resources and the bounty of the South and participated in the ways that it has been a place of exploitation um, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, to understand it as a place of extraordinary beauty and freedom dreams. You know, it's the poorest region, it's the region where people have the lowest life expectancy, it's a region where people are most vulnerable, it's also the region that is the heart of American music, it's the region um, where the deepest freedom dreams of this country have grown. There's incredible abundance that comes from people who are vulnerable, hoping for something better. Uh, and so um, that to me has always been a resource wherever I've gone, you know, the, the tradition, the culture. And I thought it was really important to identify that as well. Could you talk a little bit about what you learned? One, how your personal experiences as a person from Alabama, as you would say, Abama influenced Damn. what you were looking for and also what you learned along the journey that surprised you? Yeah, uh, such a good question. I certainly learned in a way that I didn't fully grasp before that there are Souths plural. So um, Alabamians, or Alabamans as I say, but um, the more conventional terms Alabamians, um, are, tend to really think about the South as the deep South, you know, so Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. Um, and uh, it was actually a trip to Maryland where I was talking to a docent who described Maryland as a place, you know, Annapolis, Maryland as the urban South. And I thought, oh, right. You know, there there is this history of um, the South being created in waves of, of people moving up and people moving down and that the distinctions between the different parts of the South had everything to do with what crops were raised there, which which people came um, to that location and, and what the environment would bear. And so for me, sort of seeing the South in places, I had a kind of deep South bigotry towards, including places someplace like D.C., um, was was really instructive um, and allowed me to expand my understanding. Um, 
And I think, you know, what surprised me, um, I, I, I don't know that I was prepared for how profoundly emotional so many of my interactions were going to be, my interactions with strangers. The book has lots of encounters with people um, that um, I found, you know, deeply moving and transformative strangers even. Um, and some of them became dear friends in the process. And so um, it was a life transforming book as these things go, um, as well as a book that um, I was really eager to share with the world. Uh, can you tell us more about some of those interactions and transformations that happened? Yeah, um, you know, uh, one of the stories that that I um, love and tell is about a woman I met who um, who in in Virginia, she was from North Carolina, and she talked about um, uh, having lost everything in a divorce and then finding that she had the power to heal, right? So she found Jesus and she found she had the power to heal and she was sneaky, talked about sneaking into hospitals to heal people. And there was something, you know, and so the story has a little bit, it's sort of funny, but it also revealed a lot about how and why faith is so important in the South. And then part of it has to do with people's the depth of people's vulnerability. And the desire to heal actually to said something about also the sense of sort of networked and networking and intimacy. And at the same time, I suspected that she and I had very different politics and values. And so it was one of these moments where I could see where we came together and we diverged in the same moment. And um, those were really profound. I also um, became friends with Dr. Walter Evans, who is a person a uh, man in Savannah who was the person who uh, possessed the the personal papers and family photo albums of Frederick Douglass that actually led to um, David Blight's magisterial biography of Frederick Douglass. He also is a person who um, had letters of Malcolm X that the extraordinary recent biography of Malcolm X depended on from Les Payne. And so he's this person who's this kind of font of information that all these books come through um, with this extraordinary home in Savannah, um, he and his wife. And so they became friends in the process. So it, there was just, there's so much. It's amazing because so much of the book, it feels to be about connection and memory. And we we're talking a little bit about this, the idea that um, when you're speaking, was she a cab driver? I, the yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The yeah. the connect the idea of being able to connect with folks and create a new narrative, you know, for her. It in so many ways was also what you are doing in terms of your research and your journey, and that that was really interesting to see. One of those connection points, you know, it happens to be the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about what you think the significance is of having that kind of memorial in Montgomery. Um, it is so profound. Um, and you know, it, it, there's a couple of things about where it's situated in Montgomery that I think are significant. It is, you know, there's one, it's one exit away from the Confederate Museum. 
Um, it's around the corner from the Hank Williams Museum. Um, and there's a, it's cat a corner to a um, parole office. And so it's situated in this place that has, and of course, Montgomery was one of the capitals of the Confederacy. So it's situated physically in this space where not, not only the history of slavery and the history, the relationship between that and the history of mass incarceration is very clear. But part of what Brian Stevenson has done is to re-narrate the space um, by putting the memorial at the center of it. And it has, um, and it's a, it's a word-filled memorial. It has the names of all of these victims of lynching, but it also has quotations from Toni Morrison and Elizabeth Alexander. And so we are filled with um, a kind of reverential memory of people, but also words that recast the story and tell the story of Alabama, not as a story that is triumphant from the perspective of the Confederacy, but as a story of a great deal of heartbreak and devastation, but also resilience and the possibility of struggling for justice. And so, which is, you know, what brought Stevenson to Alabama. So, um, it's a it's a it's a really uh, uh, an important important place, right? And when we're on that topic, you know, you write <laughs> that as an American, I'm expected to digest the founding fathers' venom casually, as though it is merely a part of the nation's genealogy, but not its soul. What do you think is the honest assessment of? what our founding fathers are and the honest assessment of the South? Um, I think an honest assessment of the founding fathers requires us to say that the world that they were made by and the image in which they were made was based upon an idea that only a few only a few um, ought to be recognized as fully human and fully possessed of rights. And that that shaped all doing um, who would be recognized fully as a legal person, who would be recognized as a citizen, who could hold property, who could, who perform labor and who reap the benefits of the labor. And so I think we have to tell that story honestly and then be critical about, it doesn't mean throwing away everything they said or did, but be critical. Understanding the constraints of the world out of which they came means that we need to have a critical gaze out of, with respect to the institutions and the perspectives that they, that they had. And so, you know, we shouldn't, I, I, I don't believe in a kind of reverential patriotism. I think that we should be critical about ourselves and we should be critical about our genealogy we should be honest um, because we aspire in history, because we aspire to use history to create the world, a world that's fit for everyone to live in and, and flourish. So, um, yeah, I don't I, I don't like the lionization of founding fathers or or anyone or a lionized, um, a lionized patriotism. Love of country requires, I think, brutal honesty. It's so interesting because I feel that tension it I mean it surrounds so many of the things that I'm interested in but 
you know, through your research and through what you've done, what do you think the assessment is about why is it so hard for us as a country to have that critical assessment and also fear that if we have that critical assessment, we cannot have a sense of reverence for the past. Right. I mean, I think part of it is that um, Americans are really addicted to innocence. Um, For some reason, we think being innocent is virtuous. And so if we claim innocence, that we're somehow better. And I think that's a kind of adolescent um, relationship to history and observation about the world that we should be, that we need to grow up and be transparent about who and what we are and the ways in which we're all implicated, uh, most of us, in some forms of injustice. Um, and so, you know, it, it requires a, a, a shift in culture. I think there's another piece, which is we feel the pressure of highly competitive society at all times. And so people want to hoard whatever little benefits they have, which gets in the way of actually investing in what would be good for all, right? So on multiple registers, uh, whether it is being honest about who we are, whether it is actually believing in that interdependence is really essential, we have to, we have to do some transformation in order to, um, I think, to get to, to better history, frankly. Mm. Uh, um, Could you talk to us a little bit about Shield Screen? because I think it's a really fascinating story. Uh, What did you learn about him and what do you want readers to take away from his story? Oh, I want people, so Shields Green um, was this man who went by the name, the Emperor of New York. Um, He was involved in John Brown's raid. He was a a black man who um, was described in um, really kind of ugly terms you know, as, as, you know, it's very African and, um, and it was someone who, who had a speech impediment and also someone who clearly was, um, passionate, convicted and charismatic. Frederick Douglass admired him and, you know, he died in John Brown's raid. He was executed in, in the aftermath and, um, and his body, his remains were, were, were desecrated. Um, and part of what I think is so important about including stories like his is that he wasn't literate. So we don't have his words. And so part of what we need to do in the telling of history is actually consider the stories or try to catch a, a, a hold of, a likeness of the stories that may not come directly from someone but are actually really part of, you know, of the fabric of the nation, right? And so I wanted to include him and also include what we don't know about him as being relevant to who, you know, who we take ourselves to be. The, the, our, our sites of ignorance, right, um, are critical just as our sites of knowledge are. Oh, so, yeah. Um, extraordinary story. Right. Right. It's it's that virtuous innocence, right? Yeah. Sort of the idea that if we don't have a verbal record of it or an oral record of it, we can sort of pass it by or think, think of it as something that's not completely relevant. Uh, so much of 
the book thinks about the way stories are interpreted and the way stories are translated. Uh, there are parts of the book when you talk about what you learn from your grandmother and what you learn from your parents about understanding the role of the South and the country. Uh, we talked a little bit about that interesting interlude. I think it's one of the most interesting parts of the book about your son and his assessment of the Confederate flag debates. Mm -hmm. And when you see those two things interspersed in between your journey and understanding the soul of the country, you really get to see how different generations see this country differently. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what strikes you about the way those different generations in your own family uh, have changed when thinking about the perceptions of the country and how those differences reflect on you in terms of how you think about the country? Yeah, it's such a great question because, um, you know, we tend to, I think, we run the risk of sort of thinking of ourselves as always moving in a linear forward narrative. Um, and in so many ways, I think my children are confronting as children are confronting sort of the ugliest parts of uh, American history in a much more direct way than than I did, even though I was, you know, a movement baby, in part because of the rise of white nationalism and replacement theory and um, uh, and and militias and all of these groups that are very present in um, their lives in ways that my wine, mine weren't, and in some ways it. it in ways that they weren't present in my life. And in some ways, there's a likeness between my mother having come of age um, in, under the white nationalism of Jim Crow Alabama uh, and my children uh, coming of age in, um, partially in the age of Trump. Um, I also think, you know, there's, there's these genera generational shifts that have to do with um, proximity. Um, to the land um, in my own family, proximity to so my grandmother, who really was on the land where her ancestors had been enslaved. That's the context she came of age. That sort of sense of, and, and I have tried to replicate um, the sense of ritual, the sense of reverence that comes from that. There's a kind of spiritual um, tending that I think is just, is part of people who have, who come of age knowing what happened ancestrally that I have tried to replicate, but of course it's in a different way as uh, someone who is urban um, and was born in the urban South. And it, for me, it, it manifests in how attending to stories, um, tending to the tradition, tending to the legacy of the writers who shaped me and the thinkers and the organizers and the activists. Um, and so, you know, it, the idea of home, um, registers distinctly in each generation. What I think is fascinating though is that for all of us, home stays the same place in a sense, right? So we are we're we're disparate, we've gone, we're far flung, but Alabama has it maintained a hold on the hearts of the multiple generations of my family, notwithstanding the ugliness of its history. We're coming close to the end here, but I want to talk a little bit about just uh, that filled thorough uh, 
speech that you gave the last time we saw each other. And you said, I write because I love sentences and I love freedom more. I want to talk to you a little bit about what do you think the connection is between sentences and freedom? You know, so I think about um, David Walker's appeal, right? Uh, that was published in 1829, that was sent through the South under cover of night, that was um, uh, a call to arms for freedom. Um, and people could, were, you know, were risking their lives by listening to it, you know, steal away meetings, enslaved people stealing away to hear Walker's um, appeal. And the idea of, or I think of, you know, um, Frederick Douglass's narrative that we come from a tradition and where sentence in which sentences have been used to ignite the imagination um, towards freedom dreams. And that's in the literary sense, but of course also in, in a musical sense, right? The the blues, the the the, the wail, the holler, right? That um, in the field, but also in the blues song, but also in my favorite song by the Commodore Zoom, these um, that words um, perform, I think, a kind of spiritual alchemy that is actually connected to imagining freedom. Um, and that's, you know, that's why I think those of us who um, cleave so tightly to them, right, do so. And, and, and why we, why it's so, um, the work, I think, is so meaningful. You know, it's, it's not just a, you know, it's not just a mechanical undertaking. It is, um, I think for many of us, I know, you know, certainly for both of us, it's about doing something meaningful and, and good and true. And so, yeah, that's, they're, they're highly connected. What's the next question that fascinates you as you look toward your next project? Oh, yeah. So... The next project is about the color blue um, and in black life. Uh, I am working on it on a daily basis, but the question that is really underneath it and is part of why I'm thinking so much about the color blue um, is, about, is about color and race and how it was that black people became black in the sense of that having a meaning as opposed to all of the, um, you know, the various ethnicities and nations of the African continent or, and all of the various ways that we have national identities. How, how did they become Black, not just as something that was placed upon us, but as something that we made meaning out of? Um, and I think the color blue is, 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 is helping me figure that out. So We cannot wait to see what you say about the color blue as opposed to the color purple, which is so visible on your screen today. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're out of time. So we will have to leave it there. Thank you, Imani, so much for this. Congratulations again. And thank you for speaking with me. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's Race in America on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.